You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. What is your earliest money memory? Going to Ridgely Hills Elementary School every Friday with you with orders and maybe occasionally on a great day, some dollar bills and depositing it into my Omni America savings account. Oh, I remember doing that. Yeah, they started it when I was in kindergarten. By the time I was in fifth grade, they didn't do it anymore. They stopped doing it. No, but I had that. It was a good good deal. I had that savings account until like college. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they finally yeah. kicked you out, I think. Yeah, well, no, I you just spent it. <laughs> I spent the money, yeah. I, uh, I spent it on a car. Oh, yeah, I remember It was that. a good deal. Mine was, I, I think I was in kindergarten and we were living out in New Mexico at the time and it, the yards in New Mexico, cause it's in the middle of a desert, weren't real grass lawns like we have um, here, but most of them were either dirt or rock lawns. Mm-hmm. And so I had this little wagon that uh, I went and I filled up the wagon with the prettiest rocks I could find from people's yards. You stole <laughs> so I, their rocks. So I stole so I was this little kindergarten kid and I went up and down the street and I just picked out the prettiest rocks that I, that I could find. And then I went back down the street and I knocked on everybody's doors and I said, would you like to buy, buy some pretty rocks? And so people, people looked at the rocks and then they of course looked out at their own yard and they knew exactly what had happened. But I, I, I sold some nevertheless. And, uh, pity rocks. Those they, were. they were pity rocks. And, uh, but it taught me that I could, I could earn my own money. You could bullshit people that I could, well, it didn't, it didn't need to be in that. That wasn't happening. I guess they were, they were buying my cuteness. Now that, and you can earn your own. Yeah. They, they could, bought it based on could. how cute I was, but now that, that effectiveness wore off pretty quick. But I, I remember when I was in college and my parents got divorced and my dad told me, he, he goes, well, the money's run out, you know, we're getting divorced. You, you know, you're done. I'm not supporting you anymore. And I, I think the expectation was that I would come home and, uh, Yeah, quit college at that point because that's what everybody in my family had done up to that point. And I remember taking my textbooks to the to the bookstore, selling them back, taking that money, filling it up, filling up my car with gas, and driving home, and working all summer to earn enough money to go back, and figuring out how I would kind of put myself through at that point got me started on thinking about how people have relationships with money. And, and I knew that I wanted to be more involved in that. That's sort of what led me into this career. Well, I'm glad it did. Our guest today, he has a similar story about his early money memories and how they led him to a career in financial advice. Jamie Hopkins is the current director of private wealth management for Bryn Mawr Trust in Pennsylvania. He's an expert in retirement planning for business owners He's got his law degree and a master's in financial planning and business administration. He's a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, a regular contributor for Forbes and Investment News on retirement income planning. He's also the co-director of the New York Life Center for Retirement Income and a professor in the Retirement Income Program at the College of Financial Services. He had a long esteemed career at the Carson Group, is one of the fastest growing RAs in the country, and he went over 3,000 days in a row running every single day like a madman. 
Jamie dropped a lot of wonderful wisdom that's especially useful for our audience. We talked about retiring to something instead of retiring from something. We talked about what freedom in retirement or post-business sale looks like. We talked about naming your life's aspiration, which is very different than illustrating your goals and identifying what you want your money to do once you're gone. We talked deep about our learnings and lessons from big life decisions and financial decisions. Stick around. I'm Sanger Smith, as always, with my dad, Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Jamie, thanks for being here, man. Hey, Jamie. Hey, good to see both of you. I hope you're doing well, and thanks for having me on. I've been. I've been riding the high of the Future Proof Conference since I saw you talk there. That was awesome. <laughs> that, that was That's the only conference I go to that's actually on the beach. The only one that lives up to the hype, man. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a fun conference. I didn't get to go the first year, but uh, I got to go this year, and it was uh, it was nice being there. I mean, it's beautiful, great people, great team that runs that event. Um, and yeah, it's it, it's different than anything else in our space right now. Yeah, oh, that's, absolutely that's really different. The, the biggest thing that I got a kick out of was, you know, you get there, and you're like, obviously everything looks different. It's on the beach, it's outside, it's really new, fresh ideas but it's a lot of younger advisors. And most of the time as advisors, we go places and this impacts clients too. So clients are listening like, you know, why should I care about these guys talking about their own industry? When the ideas are presented in the same way that they were presented in 1985 or 1995 or even 2005, you know, that leads to worse results for people. But the funniest thing was when the, the like the last day they had the big, um, what do you call it? Like celebration, After like, a ball party or whatever and they got they have red man come out oh yeah oh you were telling me i didn't stay up for it you know and you, <laughs> and you were telling me about it i didn't know any of the people i was so out of yeah, it yeah you, you're that's how you knew yeah. you were I, that's how i knew that's <laughs> one of the older people there yeah they've 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 pushed uh you know i think they've pushed the the envelope for our industry a bit there and just uh what an experience is like and uh, you know i think they've they call it a wealth festival right not a conference and uh yeah so it's uh they're, they're a good crew and they, they've done it a little bit before. Um, some of those people built one uh, with wealth management back in the day, Wealthstack, which tried to take a similar yeah. approach. And then, you know, that one's pretty much like any normal conference now. So they restarted. <laughs> so you were, you were invited to speak out there. Walk me through a little bit about your background and how you got into this industry, your, your journey getting to where you are now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was fun getting out. I, I got to kick off the conference actually, which was funny. I didn't know that till about like an hour before we started and they were like, oh yeah, you're like starting the conference on the stage. And I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, my my journey, you know, uh, kind of started in a, probably a lot of people's journey into finance, early age, right? Experiences around money. Um, my dad passed away when I was eight years old. I was in the construction world. Him and my mom ran a business together. They ran a, a contracting company and he passed away on a job site. Now, obviously at like eight years old after losing my dad, I'm, I'm not sitting around thinking like I'm going to go into financial planning and financial services. But, you know, those were the first experiences really around money for me that started shaping a little bit of my path. You just don't know it yet. And, um, you know, my mom successfully ran that business, still runs it today. She's in her late 60s running that same company. And, uh, 
you know, I just got interested in personal finance really because of her and her situation. I kept seeing ads on TV and, and marketing things saying, come do your retirement planning with, with us. And I kind of was like, well, what does that mean for somebody like my mom? And so eventually I started to kind of dive into it. And uh, one other thing that kind of pushed me into the world was I got to work on one of Bernie Madoff's cases. And that was like the opposite of what you want to see for people like business owners and people like my mom, right? What did, you, what did the, you learn from doing that? <laughs> yeah. Well, what I learned was is that there was, uh, you know, that this business is built on trust, right? And you have to, it's almost dynamically different than almost every other engagement that we have in the sense that like you, you have to trust your financial advisor or financial professional, whoever it is, in a different way than you trust. Like if you go to a fast food restaurant, if you have a bad meal, you just go back up and you say, hey, my meal didn't come out right. And they fix it. Like it, it's very different. A lot of things that occur in the financial world, like once something goes wrong, it's very hard to fix it. Um, and so Madoff was this abuse of trust there. And it's not what we want to see. And it did change regulations. It changed perceptions of this industry. Um, you know, the government eventually did step in and made a lot of people whole. But I mean, you still had people who committed suicide, lost their lives um, from that situation. And so you saw this this detrimental impact that the abuse of trust and financial wellness can have on people. And that's really what I took away from it. And I said, like, I want to be part of whatever it is that helps shift that dynamic so we have less of that and more of, you know, uh, people taking care of people like my mom. Like, that's what I want. I want to see Americans retire with security, not be taken advantage of. So about what age were you when you realized, hey, there's a career here that would allow me to address the problems that I started to see when I was eight years old? Yeah, I'd say... What was I probably 26. So I, I did not think I was going into this. Like I didn't go to college to study this. Yeah. Uh, I, I went to law school and it was, you know, right after, you know, I guess two years after law school. So um, I, I graduated college at 21, law school at 24. So I would have been 26 when I was working on the, the Madoff one. And that's when I started to look into it and try to see like, what else is out there? I mean, I looked at like law firms that did some of that work and, then like, you know, the areas of my knowledge base, which was like estate planning, um, tax law that I knew some about, ERISA, which is the the governing law over most of our retirement plans out there today, at least a primary one. And, um, you know, kind of ended up in the estate planning world first, then more into retirement plans over the next, you know, decade or so. So what was your first role in the industry and how do you go from that to being a thought leader in the industry and writing books. Yeah, that, the, the, the first two were kind of simultaneous. Um, so one was estate planning work. I was an attorney, so I, you know, I, was, I actually was pretty good at the estate aspect somewhere behind me. Um, I think I still have it. Yeah, like I, I was uh, ranked as a top uh, attorney coming out of Villanova in uh, state and trust just you know, but that's like an academic exercise versus real world. But I did have a knack for that. Like it just, it clicked for me on how to design trusts, draft documents in that world. And so I started there and then I started teaching uh, advisors about the qualified plan distribution rules at American College. It was an area that I had uh, gotten to work on in the appellate division and in private equity. We, we bought a couple companies with some pension funds. And so I had to learn those rules when I was working as an attorney. So those two things kind of came together at once. So one was kind of running my own business, um, 
tangentially to this. And the other one was building content and teaching uh, advisors around this, uh, you know, legal, but the legal rules around retirement plans. Now, are you, are you still with the Carson Group or did you move from them to somewhere else? Yeah. So I moved. Um, and funny enough, when you're talking about future proof, uh, it basically broke. Uh, the news kind of came out that I was leaving. Uh, I think the last day during, maybe during Redman. I don't know. I don't know that he set it up on stage. We saw the heavy job out, transition man. announced yeah. by Redman at, at the festival. Yeah. So we, uh, our, our Carson event was actually like kind of right at that moment. So I had flown out. I wasn't there for the, that concert. I'd flown out to Nashville and was at uh, our event, Excel. So I kicked off that one too. And I was like, I'll probably be the only person ever to kick off both events in the same week. Uh, <laughs> but that was like my goodbye. Uh, they kind of like retired my jersey at Carson, things like that. I, I was, a, you know, really close to Ron and, and, you know, care a lot about the organization. But I made a change over to a firm called Bryn Mawr Trust to head up the wealth team over here um, and be CEO of the RIA. Uh, and it's a big change. Um, a lot of that, I, I actually kind of hinted at a lot of this on stage at Future Proof, which is it's a one, I think it's a great opportunity. But two, I wanted to be back and local and in my area and around my family. I've got three young kids. Today is actually my one of my kids birthdays and I get to be home for it. Um, Carson's a national firm, so I traveled a ton. Uh, you know, I think I traveled like 38 out of the 40 weeks up until that point this oh, year. Geez. I only didn't travel two weeks for him. And at one point in life, I loved it. But, you know, you two get to sit here, father, son, team, right? Uh, and like, yeah, I want to be around for my kids too and, and not gone and on planes all the time. So that was a big driver for me. What did you wrestle with during that decision? Because that, that's a big decision moving from you know, one to, to the other. A big part of it, I mean, it was that. It was trying to follow through values that I told people I had, which is a very interesting thing, right? That you talk about being family first. Um, and the reality is I was making a lot of decisions that weren't family first, right? I was missing weekends and sporting events and putting a lot of pressure on my wife and kids to kind of function without me. Um, but I, I love this industry. I, I love the work I was doing. And uh, I had a really great place at Carson. And so it was kind of hard to leave there. Um, you know, I hired a couple hundred people there personally, too. Like, I, I'm very close with a lot of people. I've been in people's weddings that are there. I've had people move across the country to work with me there. And so it's it's a tough decision because you're, you're leaving people that kind of bought into the same vision that you had. Now, Luckily, places like that, they continue on without you. And that's a good thing. Uh, I also just looked at the opportunity here. And I think that there was a great opportunity to, to raise the profile of Bryn Mawr Trust uh, in our area. They have a, a long historic brand and a really great team. But, you know, I tried to put family first and not be on the road all the time. And that was the primary driver. Uh, and my wife and I made the decision to go to Carson together and we made the one to leave together too. And, uh, I thought that was really important, you know, that we sat down and, you know, we talked through it and we made the decision together. Yeah. It's an interesting perspective. I, you know, as a, as a business owner myself, I would tell my wife, I said, you know, I can be at any of the events the kids have, but I just need to know. <laughs> so that's the advantage <laughs> of sort of running your own business. I can take off on a Tuesday to go to a ballet I like practice. I you noticed that. You were not living up to the values that you said you had. I think family is, and I would put faith in the same category, are the values that nobody will tell you are stupid. 
nobody's going to disagree with you. You know, um, some of the other ones, even they may be like security, for example, may be important to most people. But there are people who say, I don't care about that. I very rarely am going to meet someone who says, I don't care about my family. Screw those kids. Um, <laughs> and, but amongst people who say, oh, I care about family is the most important. Faith is the most important. I don't often see people who act that way. It's much more rare that I see people who live that out. Um, and I'm guilty of, of it too, you know, is thinking, saying something is important, really even believing that it's important to me and then f- getting faced with the reality of, oh, I either have to change my actions or change my beliefs. And mm-hmm. Sometimes we change our beliefs. I guess that isn't, that isn't as important. Well, and the, the point I was making is that, that when I looked at my decision around you know, running a business and, and trying to make decisions around family, I felt like I was. And I remember one of the kids made a comment. I don't remember which one it was, but one of them, I remember saying, yeah, I remember you weren't around a lot, you know, growing up. I was like, oh man, just hit me right in the heart. Because I like, I thought I was, I was trying to be, and I wasn't, <laughs> I didn't feel like I was missing things, but, yeah. but uh, your lens is different from your kids' lens, your family's lens, and how they're seeing things. I had one of those moments too, and my kids are still young, but one of my, my, my sons asked me about three times now when I was traveling this past year, like, oh, do you love work more than me? Right? Like, and he didn't oh, mean wow. it in like a negative sense, but like he noticed that I gave more to work than to the family. Right? Um, and he could tell that, right? I was gone so much. He realized that at, at a very young age. And those, that's like one of those comments, right? And it just, you know, you'll never forget that one like the rest of my life, right? I'll always remember that comment and it it felt very true. And yeah, I um I do the same thing at the beginning of the year. It's right here, but uh, I do like my goals and I write family goals too. And I did go back over these when I was making the decision because, um, you know, it's like, well, am I living up to these, right? And it's, it's, in, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think the one that uh, that that mattered the most is I had support, uh, you know, well, basically raise uh, kids with resilience and gratitude. And, you know, I was kind of questioning whether I could do that well if I wasn't present. Right. And it's not just always being there, but it's even you come back from a flight, you're tired and you probably you know, business owners listening know that, too. Like you work a really long day, you come back as your mind there. Are you even present, even if you're physically there? And I was noticing that with me on weekends as I was gone all week. I needed like a whole day just to become back present and be around, you know, mentally, uh, because you're thinking the last four days I was in four different hotel rooms and like the, just getting settled back here was its own challenge. Yeah. Getting back in that routine and being able to being able to focus on what's in front of you. Well, what do you think is the the key other than writing it down? Because writing it down and speaking out your values isn't even enough. Like in the example that you're sharing, that's not enough. And that's not to pick on you. I've done the same thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of techniques you can use. So, you know, if I pull from my own story, some of them are in play, uh, probably not all of them. Uh, but I do think writing down your values and goals is a useful exercise. But to that point, like writing stuff down is not enough. Uh, I often talk about having conviction. And so conviction is 
uh, is if you kind of look at the definition of that, it's actually like having deeply held beliefs and demonstrating it. And so I think that this idea of conviction is a really beautiful thing because it's not just I believe in mm-hmm. something. Conviction is actually demonstrating your beliefs in the world, right? Like that's actually what conviction is. So it goes kind of one step further. I also think having what I'll just call an accountability partner is super important in life. And that can be your spouse in some cases. Uh, it could be a coach in other cases. It could be team members in some world. Um, but I do think, you know, who is going to hold you accountable to the things that you say you're going to do is really important. It's hard for people to self-police themselves. That's just behaviorally, right? It's really hard. It's just like, we can't spell check ourselves well if we write something. We read it how we thought we wrote it. We all think we're above average drivers. We're all above average intelligence, yeah. right? Like we don't check ourselves well. So who is that person? Do you have a coach? Do you have a mentor? Um, do you do 360 reviews with the people you work with? So you get feedback from them. And, you know, in the family world, can your spouse, can your, you know, sometimes maybe it's your parents, but who's going to kind of hold you accountable in that world too? And, uh, you know, I think to some degree, my wife helps hold me accountable, um, you know, in in that world. But so does my mom, my sisters. I feel like I have a great support network um, that I get to rely on. I didn't have to rebuild that. But for some people, they don't have that network. So I do challenge people sometimes, like, what's your community then? Like, and not the accidental community, but your purposeful community. So do you need friends and colleagues and people that hold you accountable to those values that you say you're going to have in life? I think when, when we look at retirement, and I do a lot of work in that area in Sanger as well, I, I think one of the things that people miss when they move into retirement is that loss of community. They mm-hmm. they take it for granted, the people they work for, that meaning and that sense of purpose and meaningful work. And then when they leave that, they seem to to really be lost without that community of fellow travelers, so to speak. Yeah, and that's uh, that term I, I used once already is accidental communities um, versus purposeful communities. It's uh, I don't I don't think I made it up, but I haven't seen it used in those terms much around retirement. But most of our lives, we end up in uh, what I kind of say is accidental communities. Right, we're born into our family. It's accidental in the sense like we didn't pick that. Right, like I didn't right. choose to be born into my family. Um, now. You know, when you get married and have kids, that's a purposeful community. Um, But a lot of times like work, you end up in this community and yeah, maybe you pick the job, but the people you end up friends with at work and communicate with probably a little bit accidental. It's like who you ran into on your first day and like who sat one cube over from you. And like that becomes part of your community, who your boss hired to sit next to you. Uh, You know, there's and we we rely on a lot of those. You get to retirement and a lot of those accidental communities can disappear. And so then the challenge is like, what are you going to make as your purposeful communities? Are you and what role are you going to play in those communities? Right. Are you going to, you know, give back to your church and, and be a driver of activity in communities? Or are you going to be a participant? Um, you know, even in your family, what role are you going to play when you retire? And for business owners, that can shift, right? Like all of a sudden you have more time. You might play a different role in your family organization than you did pre-retirement. And so I do think it requires a shift from almost like this accidental community world to a purposeful community world, because a lot of the accidental ones kind of disappear. Not all of them, but a lot of them can at least alter at that point when we get to retirement. I like the phrase that you used, the family organization, um, because your role in that organization is 
is important and you can be purposeful about it. In some ways we are, um, we step into roles that we were not necessarily given, right? So you're a, you're a husband, not necessarily because you chose that unique role off indeed. Uh, you're, you're a husband because you just are a <laughs> husband, right? Um, but that, that has rec- job requirements that are, that are, yeah. that come standard with the role. And the way that you fill the role is something that you can choose and how committed you can be to the role is something that you can choose and in communion with your wife can design. And I don't think a lot of us do that for the roles that we play within our families. We, we, or even like our friend groups or our communities, like you say, you play a role in your community um, that you might not be conscious of. We do it for work, especially business owners. We're really conscious of the role. Whether it's, you know, I'm a leader or I need to step back and have less of a role so my business can run itself. We're really aware of the role that we're playing and we're designing roles for other people who work for us in our company. And then we go to our family and we're just dad, wife, sister, brother, father, and we accept the standard job requirements of that role without a lot of conviction like you were talking about. Yeah, and actually... uh, this is not really my area of expertise, but it's one that I think we all have experience on is, you know, you talk about families and spouses is actually like talking through roles. To your point, a lot of spouses just kind of take on roles, right? Like you're, you know, I'm a husband and like, I just take on some husband-esque duties. Yeah. Maybe, wouldn't like maybe sit- it's because dad did that for you in your family. Yeah or, yeah, or you see on TV that husbands do it. Like, it, it can come from anywhere if it's not coming from you. Yeah, and it's not always the case that both spouses wanted those roles, right? Um, it's an interesting thing, right? Like, um, and sometimes they, they change. Like, I do, like, I love cooking. So, like, I've taken that one on, and, like, we do discuss it now, but, like, you know, I don't think at first I really like sat down and said like, I'm going to do all the cooking. It's just like, I just kept doing all the cooking because I liked cooking. But, you know, right. it was probably worth a good conversation of like, do we want to share in this one? So so um, I, I think our, our roles change a lot, you know, when we sell a business, get, you know, get married, retire. Have you noticed that there are mistakes people make in their thinking or their frameworks, mindsets when they move into that phase into retirement, for example? Yeah. So uh, ones that you see of behavioral changes, actually, there are, uh, I'll I'll talk about both personal and then family dynamic ones. We kind of touched on this one earlier. So if you actually look at the data around uh, happiness in retirement, what you see is retirees are actually happier than the general population on average. One of the problems with averages is though, right, it's not telling you a totally clear picture interesting thing is there are actually more people depressed in retirement that that land in the depressed category than in the general population. So it's a very confusing thing. And the reason is you get a lot of people that get this positive move upward in retirement. And are, are you saying there's, there's more of both, more people who are more happy and more people who are more depressed? Yes. So huh. if you think of an average, right? as people, like you get more people moving up the happiness spectrum. So the average actually moves up. The average of the whole population is happier, but you actually get people that shift downward and become more unhappy. So you don't have a lot of people that kind of just sit in the middle. You get people that become happier and you get people that become less happy. And when they look at the group that becomes uh, more depressed, it's mostly due to that loss of meaning in community that all of a sudden, 
their work is gone, their natural community is gone, and they don't find a way to replace that. And that's a really big challenge. Uh, One of the exercises I've had people do before when they're looking at retirement is actually fill out a calendar and write down the times of what you're going to do in a day once you retire. And you'll actually find it becomes like kind of challenging (laughs) because you're like, you've got nine hours open and you're like, well, I've got like three hours of stuff I can write down. And it forces people to visualize it. And there's some research by a, a, a individual at a UCLA called Hal Hirschfield, who's done a lot of work on the visualization of your future and how it creates this connectedness between you today and that future. And it has a lot of really positive behavioral elements to it. Um, he actually has a new book out. I forget the name of it, but uh, maybe later on you guys can drop it in the show notes. But uh, he's a fantastic researcher. And, you know, that's actually a really good thing to do is, you know, what is this going to look like? Write it down, visualize it. Um, he even goes so far to say, like, put pictures to those things. It's It helps our brain actually, like, tie it in a little bit better. Um, most of us probably would agree we're somewhat visual learners. We process visual stuff a lot better than we process audio um, in general. So, but uh, the other one I'll just hit real quick is, you know, we, you mentioned this, like family dynamics change when one person might retire um, and the other person was already working in the home or retired and having conversations of what life is going to look like is really important. I see it all the time, two vastly different views of what retirement's going to be like. And actually, when you when you kind of look at it, you do get one couple sometime that's a lot less happy than the other one because they haven't found a balance of what life looks like at that point together. And I think that's super important as your world changes tremendously when you retire in a lot of cases. But make sure that you understand, like, what are the job duties at home and in the relationship yeah. that you're both going to take on? In some ways, Jamie, I, I don't know that I, I don't have any data to support this, but I'll tell you anecdotally what I see as an advisor. The joy of owning a business and building a business is building. It's not once you get it to its sellable, you know, packaged up mm-hmm. piece. It's building it that's fun. Um, and that's the case with anything. Anything that we work toward, the journey is what's enjoyable, not reaching the mountaintop. And so particularly for business owners, in my experience, when I see someone who's spent his or her whole life building something in a way that's above and beyond his peers, sells it, he's done, he has nothing left to build because he's built the perfect retirement already. Even if he's done the work to say, this is going to be how I get my social connectivity, my financial life is going to be perfectly attuned, Um, this is how my marriage is going to work, this is what we're going to do together, we're going to travel on this and that. When they've already built it and they arrive at retirement or post-exit from their business and retirement's built for them, there's less happiness than the families that I see where they go, okay, now that I've built my business and I'm done with my business, I'm moving into this phase where I'm going to build out my perfect retirement. Now, of course, there are things that you've got to already have the resources for. You've got to have the money to build the perfect retirement, right? You can't hope, I'm going to sell my business and the money's going to come later magically. But it's like a family that I'm thinking of, as you say this, a couple that live in Virginia, they sold their business. A few years later, he he retires uh, from work entirely. And his job now is, hey, I'm going to build this beautiful home. And that's occupying his, like, 
you know, creative energy. It's giving him a purpose, a reason to wake up and go, okay, I'm going to build this perfect home. And the joy of it and why it's kind of like taking him a while is because he, he kind of notices. He once did I, the journey, Dan. Yeah, you know, once I build this home, what am I going to do next? Yeah. There, there is some data to support that phased retirement is really beneficial um, from like a happiness and enjoyment standpoint. And I think to some degree, it, it's that, right? Like it gives you a pathway to figure out where you're going to get the enjoyment from. Um, but I love that like project-based thing. I, I'm kind of like that too, though. I've renovated uh, like, well, two and a half houses and uh, like, I love it. And like, I could do that forever in retirement as long as my body held up. But like, it would give me that like project to fill my time. And like, where do I put my energy as a builder back into that? Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of people, you see it less with business owners than I do with people who work for larger corporations where they're seeing the point of work as to retire. Yeah, you know, I'm working so that I can retire and missing the value of the journey and what they what they learn along the way. Do you, do you think when people get to that point around getting to a point of financial freedom that they're missing some of the other types of freedom they could be exposing themselves to? I, I think it's all how we how we think about that that point of retirement and the freedom that we get. Yeah, I think I think people miss on it. I mean, again, I don't have great data on this one, um, but you know, the anecdotal work that I've done with a lot of clients, I do think people are missing it. Uh, I do bring up the like, are you retiring from or to something? I, I love that phraseology too. Like, mm -hmm. are you retiring from your job because you don't like it? Or are you retiring to something? And what is it that you're retiring to? Uh, the other kind of one I, I like to ask is what does freedom mean to you? And you brought up the financial freedom. The interesting thing is, uh, I wouldn't say rarely, but it's usually not one of the first statements when I ask somebody, what does freedom mean to you? That they're like, oh, I have $3 million. Like they don't give you a number in that one. What, what kind usually, of answers are you getting? Yeah. Usually you get the, you know, so I could wake up and, you know, do what I want that day with the people I love, right? And like you get answers like that, which is really interesting because if you change it just a little bit, right? Like if you asked like, what is financial freedom to you? You would get a different answer than just what does freedom mean to you? And what it kind of tells you is that there's actually a lot beyond that financial freedom point. And so, you know, Ron Carson, and I wrote a book that's behind me, one of the couple books I've written called Find Your Freedom. And we actually talk about that a lot in there that, um, you know, it doesn't happen for everybody, but you go on this journey to find financial freedom. And then once you get there, I mean, Ron's kind of more in that part of his life, which is like he realized that like all this money by itself wasn't very meaningful, right? Like, that's great. You got there. But what were all the things that were going to provide meaning and joy and happiness and then impact your ability to give back to the world and make change? Um, or spend time with grandkids. And that's one thing that he really enjoys doing more now and he prioritizes over uh, other things. And it does take you on this really interesting path to, uh, you know, kind of getting beyond goals and more to aspirations. Um, and, uh, you know, in the financial planning world, it's interesting because we got really hyper-focused the last 20 years on goal-based planning, which is useful. But when you start kind of dissecting it is it kind of stops one level short still is like what do you aspire to be like you aspire to be a great husband a great philanthropist a great human you know we talked about faith like a great person of faith well the goals then are the mile markers along mm -hmm. the way including your finances right 
And so I think that a lot of people lose sight of like what they aspire to be to achieve those particular goals. So like I want to retire at 65 with $3 million. That's a goal. And that sometimes that hyper focus on that goal leads us to forget about like why we want to do any of that actually. Like it's not actually to retire at 65 with $3 million. And without the additional work to determine what that goal is supporting, what that grander vision Mm -hmm. that that goal is aiming you toward, uh, it could be the entirely wrong goal. You might not even need three and a half million dollars. Maybe you need to retire sooner. Maybe you need to retire later. Who knows? All these numbers, we focus on them. Uh, they could be entirely wrong. And they're, the existence of the goal is pointing you somewhere necessarily. And if you don't know where it's pointing you, then it's pointing probably pointing you somewhere that you don't even want to go. At least it's pointing you somewhere you didn't actively choose. And like to go back to the decision that you made to leave Carson and and take on a different role, you weighed all these social consequences, you weighed the family consequences. I'm sure you and your wife also weighed the financial impact of it. So I don't think there are any financial decisions that don't have these other con- or consequences. There are no, There is no purely financial decision that you can make that doesn't have a social consequence, a family consequence, a health consequence, a well-being, a, a, a meaning consequence. And if we don't focus on what those other ones are, then we're going to make bad financial choices too. <laughs> because in order for it to be a great financial decision, it's got to support through money these other outcomes. Like how people are never answering your question, what does freedom mean right. with, a, with a money number? <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I think about that, there was a company years ago that was talking about, you know, you're talking about the goal-based planning and they would advertise, you know, do you want to like start a be a potter, be a fisherman, you know, uh, you want to start a winery, you know, and all these types of things. These were the, these were the goals of retirement. And I, I looked at that and I said, well, there's, there's a step before that, before somebody can establish realistic, meaningful goals, and they've got to get a place of security and freedom. They've got to be at that point first, but they've also got to define what is that freedom that they are seeking. You know, what is that, that larger thing that sits on the other side of those goals, right? And so that Dan Sullivan talks about, are you familiar with Dan Sullivan, a strategic coach? He talks about the four types of freedoms. He talks about the financial freedom, being able to you know, kind of have the resources to live the life that you want, but also freedom of time, being able to spend my time how I want, but then freedom of relationships to be able to associate with people who are helping me grow, and then the freedom of purpose to be able to pursue the things that I that I want that are going to help me grow and get to more meaningful periods. So when he, when he looks at those four points of freedom – I think defining it that way and understanding how you define those definitions of freedom for you, for yourself is critical before you make a decision as big as selling a business or retirement or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, yes, it, Dan, I, I love Dan's view of it too. And yeah, I kind of laid it out. Um, it's very similar to Dan's approach, which is almost like the hierarchy of need. Right. And you kind yeah. of go through that if you don't have that base level of that financial stability, it's really hard to get past that. Um, you know, are there people that do it? Yes, but it's pretty rare, right? That somebody lacks financial stability, but yet still finds freedom in the other areas. So they kind of stack on each other, you know, you know, through legacy. Um, I think that one's an interesting one too, because a lot of people, when I bring up legacy, they immediately go to, that's a different one is like a lot of people 
in my world, I guess, and probably yours, and I guess it's the construct of the environment. But when I bring it up, people usually talk about money in that one. And I'm always like having to refer people back. I was like, most of legacy is actually not about money. It's like, what are the values you passed on your kid or the impact on the world and like, you know, charitable endeavors. And that doesn't just have to be dollars. It, the other one I like doing with people around this too, is I ask them like, I've got two retirements for you, right? One is, right, uh, you have the most efficient retirement income plan of all time and you die with the most money that anybody's ever had in the history of the world, but you're pretty unhappy. I was like, here's another one, right? You spend all your money down. You don't have any money when you die, but you were the happiest person alive ever throughout retirement. Which one do you want? <laughs> right. And like in my life, right, nobody's ever said I want to die with the most money possible and be super miserable. <laughs> right, right. I ask, the, I ask people the question about what do you want to see your money do when you when you leave it behind you. So when you pass away, what do you yeah. want your money to do? And people will invariably answer that question by listing beneficiaries. I want you to go to my kids or my wife or my church yeah. or whatever. And I'll have to reframe the question to say, no, what is it that you want it to do? Not where do you want it to go? What do you want <laughs> it doing when you're done with Why it? Why do you think it's, that is such a hard question for people to answer? And my, I have the same experience. People don't answer it in any other way than say, well, I want Johnny to get some. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a, well, I have an assumption on why, um, and I'll tell you, this actually came about when I was doing estate planning work, and I realized that different cultures will actually answer this differently. Um, there are cultures that approach more of a passing on of uh, values as part of their legacy conversations, right? And um, they'll actually answer the question a slightly different. Uh, you know, my, uh, I'd say my traditional world up here and then, you know, uh, where I work with most people don't answer it that way, but there are cultures that are more focused on that. And so they will answer, you know, uh, around a value-based approach. I think the main reason though, in the United States is that we tend to be a little bit more of a death-denying society um, we actually don't like talking about dying. We don't like talking about what happens to us afterwards. Uh, you know, we actually try to avoid that conversation. It feels really unnatural. Um, it, where a lot of countries, right, they actually celebrate death more. Like we mourn death here. Like as a country, we generally speaking mourn death. Yeah, even we compared to Mexico, which is right next door, especially for us in Texas. Yeah. Yeah, people always say, if I die, not when yeah, I yeah, 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 they do. Yeah, if I die. Oh, there's a question about that? Yeah. I'm pretty sure you're yeah. going um, that's a, that's a really Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that, um, I, I, I wonder, I'm curious what the what the cause of that is. I suspect that it's a, um, a focus, a, a consequence of a materialist culture is when we idolize uh, things that aren't everlasting, you know, then we don't focus on the components of us that are transcendent or that at least have a hope to be and values transfer is, is a part of that. So we, we do yeah. like to live as if we're immoral, at least unconsciously. I think a lot of people act that way. Um, yeah, we really like superheroes here okay. too. I think that I'd like, I got to put some blame on Marvel and, and DC <laughs> somewhere, right? Like, it's just like, like, yeah, well, like, but like, Maybe I am Superman. You know, I don't know for sure. <laughs> like, I haven't tested it out if I'm immortal yet. So, like, I just don't know. Uh, 
But yeah, it's interesting. Mexico, I mean, even when you go to Europe, um, like Europe still, even though like most of America, right, is immigrants from somewhere at some point, right? Uh, but you go to Europe and they they celebrate people's lives more. And like my, a lot of my family's from the Netherlands and we went back to my aunt's funeral about a year ago. But it's much more of a celebration of life and storytelling and photos. And it's like a whole day long of that. And it's, you know, here it's very different experience in most, not all, but it's very interesting to just see that dynamic from, as you said, like Mexico, very different approach, right? Um, Latin America, very different approach. Uh, Parts of Europe are actually a little bit closer to us and they more and more than they celebrate. I wanted to ask you, this is off topic. I think I heard that you ran for 3,000 days straight. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I ran for 3,004 consecutive days outside, uh, just about uh, right around five miles a day for that entire stretch. Didn't miss a day. Uh, It is, yeah. I mean, look, it's always somewhat relevant. Uh, It actually tells you a little bit about my mindset is probably what it tells you the most about. (laughs) But yeah, I I broke my leg in a soccer match during that point and ran on a broken uh, tibia at the, like, until it healed. But um, during that stretch, I would take an ace bandage wrap, take the, like, metal brace off, wrap up my leg in the ace bandage and, and go for a run and hopefully not make it worse. And, uh, so, yeah, I would not recommend that to people, though. Like, there are things you do in your life that you're like, but I wouldn't recommend. Like, I don't want my kids to do that. Um, and it's an interesting thing, right? Um, I did it because, I, you know, I was trying to, most of it was like a mental toughness thing and trying to kind of demonstrate the, I guess, like a, like a, a way to demonstrate the type of commitment that I can show to something. And... You know, that's why I did it. I don't think it was necessarily a smart thing. I wouldn't recommend it for others, um, but I felt like I could do it. And, you know, ultimately I did. My my leg did heal all the way up. And funny enough, like I didn't have any physical therapy after because I actually moved my leg and ran on it every day. So like, you know, uh, there, there's maybe something to that. But I, yeah, I, I went through a lot of stuff. I actually broke three ribs uh, during that time period too. Um, you know, so I, I ran on with broken ribs. That was actually harder than running on a broken leg for as odd as that sounds, because as soon as you get, if if you've ever broken a rib, as soon as you get out of breath or try to laugh or anything, it's awful. So like the very first day I went to run with uh, broken ribs, I like was running up a hill and got out of breath and was like, I had to stop. Like it just stopped in my tracks. Oh yeah. I've had a broken rib. It sucks. Yeah. Yeah. The, and there's the nothing reason I ask do. you that is <laughs> is that when you go through times of stress like that and you're challenged to to make decisions every time you re-engage and, and keep that going, what did you learn about decision making? What would you say would be your biggest decision making tip for people? Yeah, I, I actually had three really big things. So I'll, I'll go through the for three. The first one was you need relevant experience to uh, be able to accomplish something that you otherwise wouldn't have thought possible. So if you would have told me at the beginning that I I could run for 3,004 days through broken ribs and a broken leg, um, I would have told you I couldn't do that, right? So it wasn't until I started developing like that day-to-day experience of how to run, how to overcome a sprained ankle and still go run, how to get sick and go run and take care of my body, um, that I could actually realize that I could accomplish it. So that was one really big thing. Um, I also learned that, you know, you really do develop habits. And so that was a developed habit for me and it became easier. And reality was it was just 
going and running for one day ultimately, right? Like I didn't run for 3,004 days at one time. I ran one day. That's it. And like it's, I tell people, like I didn't run 3,004 days. I went for a run. Like you could go for a run today. You just have to do that again and again, a whole bunch of times. But like you just go for a run today. That's it. And it all starts with just one foot in front of the other. Most of us can do that. <laughs> uh, like it, it, in total, it seemed really daunting. But uh, when you think about it and you break it down to the pieces, it's not as daunting. And then the last one is that your goals and things that matter to you change. So I started it when I didn't have kids. I wasn't married to my wife. I didn't own a, I didn't have a dog. I didn't own a plant. I lived in the city with a roommate and, uh, you know, sh- sh- uh, I traveled all the time. I was barely in the city and, uh, like, you know, I could run every day and that was my goal. You know, fast forward eight and a half years, I had two kids, a dog, a wife and a house and running every day through broken body parts was no longer important. And so to stop, I like, that's what I realized. And like, and I just stopped one day. I was like, ah, I think I'm done because it wasn't important anymore, right? Like my goals in life and priorities had shifted. And so then it's okay to change your life. And like, I had to give myself permission though, to be like, hey, this is a habit and a thing that was really important to me. And it's okay that it's not important to me anymore because what I want in life is different. I want to be healthy for my grandkids in 30 years, not run for another five years every day. Yeah, that's really healthy. I've had experiences like that myself. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for being here, Jamie. Where can people connect with you and learn more about the work you're doing? Yeah, so uh, my website should be back up and running again soon, but it's usually jamiehopkins.com. That's my personal website where I put out, you know, articles of my books. Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter still, or X, I guess now I should should fix that, but uh, at Retirement Risks, uh, those are the main two places. I do run a nonprofit, FinSur Foundation, which uh, provides scholarships to our industry to help people get in uh, to the profession of financial services from, uh, you know, really people are struggling to afford school and exams, things like that. We also offer mentorship there. And uh, it's been a, been a great work on the nonprofit. And uh, yeah, those are the main things. I, I work at Bryn Mawr Trust, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, just BMT.com or something like that, uh, at BrynMawrTrust.com. If you want to check out Trust World, uh, we, we always have a lot of trust documentation and information insights there. We've got a copy of Rewirement here. Um, great book. Check it out. Thanks again for being here, Jamie. Hey, thanks, Jamie. It was great talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. My takeaway from our discussion with Jamie was looking at something we have talked about before, which is deciding based on alignment with your values. point he brought in was looking at doing that with conviction and having accountability partners, having those purposeful communities that you can travel with through the decision to the other side of that decision so that you're gaining what you need after the decision is made. My biggest takeaway was in that same vein when Jamie talked about conviction, it really made me think a lot about what we mean when say we believe something. If we believe something, but we are not acting it out, we probably don't believe it. At the very least, we're not acting as if we believe it. So that belief is not as strong as it could be when Jamie decided to take a new job so he could be closer to his family. That's an effort to align his actions with his beliefs and live out as if it were true what he says is important to him. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. 
Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.